everybody loves a good mystery story. I go to bed on uh, Saturday night pretty early because I have this job on Sunday morning. And uh, so oftentimes when I'm going, trying to go to bed on Saturday night, um, anybody know what's on, uh, I think it's on Channel 4, every Saturday night? The Dateline Mystery. Um, we love mysteries. We love mysteries so much. I think there's actually like a channel now dedicated to Dateline Mysteries. So like if you want to watch them 24 hours a day, which is kind of scary that there's that many bad demises of people, that there's that much, you know, there's that much drama, a script for, for Dateline. But they built a whole franchise on mystery. But it's not just them, right? it's not just TV, there's a whole genre of movies related to mystery. There's, you can go to Barnes & Noble, there'll be book, there'll be aisles of books dedicated to mystery. Uh, one of the greatest selling board games of all time, dedicated to mystery, right? It was. Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick. <laughs> Mystery! It's something about the human condition that, that enjoys trying to figure out the clues. And usually what's interesting about mystery is, is the clues don't always add up to what the ending is. Oftentimes the ending is not what was expected. If you have been in our study over the last couple of weeks, of one of the most preeminent, preeminent writings in all of Christmas, his book, Ephesians, that, that Paul wrote to a town called Ephesus. It was pretty cool in my starting point group. There was uh, two couples, both had been to, uh, to the ancient um, city of Ephesus. They were showing pictures and everything, and them walking in some of these places. Very cool stuff. Paul reveals to that church the answer to one of the world's great mysteries. Now, if you've been watching the news lately, I mean, heck, if you're even just a being and you've tasted in your life some of the common pains of being a human being, uh, suffering of loss or disappointment, the things that the world dishes out, you've asked the common question regarding mystery. And it's this. In a world that seems to be spinning out of control, in my own private world where things don't seem to be going the way they should be going, the eternal question is, what the heck is God doing? What is he up to? I mean, does is he know that, that, that things are falling apart down here? Is he distant and far off? Is he not aware of the situation? And so the mystery that existed over all of millennia about how God was going to answer that question, how he would reveal himself, we spent most of the last service talking about that topic. I don't have time to do it, do it justice this morning. So for a further explanation of it, you can go back online, watch it online on the website or through Facebook, but I'll just give you a hint of it because I want, I want to springboard off it this morning. Paul talks about this mystery a lot in his writings. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, With all wisdom and understanding, he, being God, has made known to us the mystery of his will. What has he been up to? According to his good pleasure, this brings God pleasure, what he's been up to, this, the revelation of this mystery and what he's been doing, this is a feel-good story for God. What you're going to see is, when it got revealed, it wasn't a feel-good story to people. This is what he's done. He's been known to us the mystery of his will because it was his good pleasure. He purposed in Christ to put it to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment at just the right time. Here's what it is. Here's the answer to the question of what he's been up to. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, if you were here last week, I introduced you to a Greek word that sums that up. Uh, in one powerful word, I told you to take it home and uh, use it on somebody in Scrabble, and somebody pointed out to me afterwards, there is no way you could use it in Scrabble, you would never have this many letters. 
But this is the word. It's only used two times in all of the Bible. In your big, thick Bible, this only comes up two times, this word. Anna, kephala, iosis, thigh. Anna, kephala, iosis, thigh. To sum up or gather up into one under the head as the organizing center. That's what this means. This is what God has been up to over all of time. This is the mystery of his will, now revealed to you. And it could He's taking all of everything and he's unifying it. He's bringing it together. It's going to work in harmony under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's what he's up to. Now, last week we talked about that and what that means for you in your life. We talked about the loss of shalom in the Garden of Eden. How all of the systems broke down. We once related to God in peace. We related uh, to each other in peace, man to man. We related to the creation in peace. And when, when we fell, when we chose to make, our, make ourselves our own God, right? That's at the root of sin. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. When we did that, it all began spinning out of control. But what God is returning us to is that shalom that we originally were created to enjoy. Now, this revelation of the mystery, hopefully you sensed it last week, when you truly understand it, this was enough to make the angels in heaven cover their mouths in shock and awe that God would do this. Because what he's doing has two powerful implications. One has to do with who you are, and the other has to do with what you should do. One has to do with identity, one has to do with purpose. And in the rest of this letter to this church in Ephesus, Paul talks about this process and how it becomes real in your life. Because it's not just theology. Anakafella Iosestai can be seen here on earth. You can see Anakafella Iosestai, you can see that God is up to it, but how? Let me move you to, uh, to chapter 2. Hopefully this week I've encouraging you to be in the scriptures and to read this so when you show up you kind of been thinking about this. Let me move you to chapter 2 which is what I asked you to study last week. Um, here, here's what Paul says. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles, let me pause. In case you're new around the church, you're not sure you've ever spent a lot of time in scripture. Let me explain to you what a Gentile is. A Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. Raise your hand this morning if you were a Gentile. All right, I got a room full of Gentiles, right? And so this letter, this description is of you. You ready? Don't forget that you used to be outsiders. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ. There it is. You have been united with Christ. You've been brought into one. You're co-heirs with him. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. We talked about redemption. We've won this. For Christ himself brought us peace. Here it is again. He united Jew and Gentile into one people. We're going to talk about this. This is a theme in the rest of the book. Hint, hint. A lot of us talk about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people within his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He made peace between Jew and Gentile by, here it comes again, and fellow society, by creating himself one new people from two groups. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. 
I know you read that, and I know what that sounds like theology. This was such a shocking, offensive message when it was written at the time. It would be more likely to have a dinner party this Tuesday night with Trump and Hillary supporters getting together to sing Kumbaya <laughs> than it would have been to have Gentiles and Jews reconcile. They hated each other. Their history was full of persecution and sacrilege. In fact, this, this message, this mystery was so profound and so disturbing, it actually caused fights and quarrels amongst the first followers of Jesus. Church, listen to this now. The church, listen to this. The first church fights, the first church divisions, were about who could be included in the love and promises of God and who might be excluded from the love and promises of God, to which I might add, some things never change. And under the heading, some things never change. There stands today all over the world people groups who have no idea that the mystery of what God is up to in this world that just seems to be spinning out of control. They have no idea that Paul, that God is up to this. It's been revealed to certain people. And so Paul, when he wrote this letter, another letter to a church in Rome, he, he poses a question about these people who don't know, these people that would be perceived as outsiders. Sometimes they're far away, and sometimes they live in our house and work in the cube next to us. He says this, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on Him to be saved unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they've never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless somebody tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the Scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. And so, here is Anakaphaliosistai impacts not just our identity, we're not just adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God, but it, it impacts your purpose. Watch what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. He says this, all of this, your salvation, your adoption as sonship, all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling. God has given us the task of Anakophaliosis by bringing people to him because God was in Christ and he was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. That's the good news, folks. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Some of you are new around our church. We're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, outside of this room, hardly anybody ever knows what the Christian Missionary Alliance is. People go, where are you a pastor of? I said, uh, say, Mendel's Chapel. They go, what denomination? I go to the Christian Missionary Alliance, and they look at me like it might be a cult that I'm unaware I find myself in. <laughs> the reason that most people don't understand what the Christian Missionary Alliance is is because it was never actually meant to be a denomination. It was meant to be a group of believers who so believed that this message was worthy of being sent out, that so believed that our identity was not just as adopted sons and daughters of God, but that we had a message to share, that we had become agents of it, that they said, we're going to focus our whole lives, we're going to give all of our money, we're going to give all of our time, and we're going to take this message to all ends of the earth. And so the, the Christian Missionary Alliance was to be a movement based off of the concept of Anakaphaliosis I. 
Go and tell them what God is up to and what he's doing. That's what I love about this denomination. Because, it, you know, it's not about all these other things. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's about, it's about doing what he asked us to do. And, and what's been fun in this church is over the years, uh, a lot of folks have just gotten caught up in this. And they've heard God say to them, that's you, go. I'm giving you a message, go, go, go and tell people. And so one time a year, our denomination says, would you stop what you're doing normally? Would you just stop for a few minutes and pause and remember those that have gone out, those that have taken this message to dangerous places in my name, to faraway places, and would you make sure the church is back on board with, with what's happening? Because this is primary stuff for us. And so today, we're going to stop for a few minutes, right in the middle of Paul's letter, because he's showing you how desperate the need is for this, and we're going to recognize one of our own, two of our own. that does that's different than most other missionary sending organizations is um, most other missionary sending organizations if you want to go and bring this message of what God is doing in the world if you want to answer that eternal question you need to go raise funds and, and so what can be frustrating for these messengers of the gospel is that they can spend a lot of their time raising funds raising funds in the CMA we don't do that we send our friends and, and the weight of that support falls on us so there's a fund called the Great Commission Fund that our church gives to every year. You give to every year through your giving. This church, our little gathering here, every year gives over $100,000 to missions. So I just want to encourage you um, to keep giving, not just towards men. And of course, we need, you know, we got to keep, we gotta keep the, the lights on and the heat going, but also uh, towards missions through this place because it supports stories just like that. Now, with that in mind, at the end of the message, I want to make a little bit of a turn here because I need you to understand something before you move on in Ephesians. I asked you this week, you were supposed to hopefully be spending some time on Ephesians 2, 15 minutes a day, five times, right? Next week, you're going to move on to Ephesians 3. There's going to be more stuff on this mystery about the reconciliation of Gentiles and Jews. Paul spends so much time on it because it's so offensive. He knows that his audience is going to go, I'm having a hard time with this. Because it's going to be hard for good law-abiding followers of God, you know, to suddenly count the Gentiles among them. They were considered unclean. They were commonly referred to as dogs. The Jews that Paul was writing to, they considered themselves the chosen people of God. And for centuries, for centuries, they related to God. They, they, they understood who they were based on how they kept all of God's laws. Not just the Ten Commandments. But all the other ceremonial laws that have been built up around them, all of their focus, guys, you need to understand why this message was so offensive. Because to the audience who it was written, their very identity was based on how good they kept the law. Am I a good person or am I a bad person? Right? All of their focus was on the law. They believed it was the law that saved them. And so for them, that's where all of their energy and identity would go, to the law. You can still see this today with good law-abiding Jews to this day. I was recently in a medical arts building locally, and in that building, in that court, was a Sabbath elevator. Have you ever seen a Sabbath elevator? Because it, it is it, good, good law-abiding Jews will not work on the Sabbath, and so it could be construed that work would be pushing the bottom. And so a Sabbath elevator 
stops at every floor. You don't have to push a, a button. These laws have, have continued to morph over the centuries. In fact, I was reading today one rabbi's interpretation of these laws to his followers. And this, these are not uncommon rules. Lights, for example, which need to be turned uh, on on the Sabbath, need to be turned on before the Sabbath. This is, this is how serious these laws are taken. Automatic timers might be used for lights and some appliances as long as you set them before the Sabbath. Your refrigerator may be used, but again, we have to ensure that the use does not engender any of the forbidden Sabbath activities. Thus, the fridge light should be disconnected before the Sabbath by unscrewing it slightly. And a freezer whose fan is activated when the door is open may not be used. And we, we might think that's funny. But this is the way under which most of the world for millennia in Judaism and most other faiths have lived. Obey the law, keep the law, and you'll be favored and accepted by God. You'll be a good person. But here's what Paul says. Paul comes along and he says, here's what's going to happen. Here's the mystery of God's will. You good law-abiding Jews, you children of God, what Jesus is doing is he's uniting you together with the Gentile dogs. Good news. And they're going, are you kidding me? The law says we can't even eat with them. And now you're saying that we're going to be equal with them? And as I've heard my children cry out 10,000 times over the 20 years of their existence, that's not fair. We have a little tradition in our house. It happens about 2.30 on Christmas Eve night. It's called the counting of the gifts. You have that tradition in your house? A little quick look before I go up to bed. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. Joan, wrap up the underwear. <laughs> Gotta get the number of gifts right because we want to be fair. And things haven't changed. Paul was writing this letter, okay? Paul is writing this letter not because he's coming up with these ideas on his own, but because he met Jesus Christ. And these are not Paul's ideas, these are Jesus' ideas that he is passing along. Do you know the story that Jesus told about how he had some yard work to do, so he went into Morristown and hired some day laborers? Are you familiar with that story? Because <laughs> it goes something like that. It's in, uh, it's in Matthew. Let me read it to you, and you can hear it. Just tell, just tell me you can't hear your 12 year old. That's not fair. That's what Jesus says. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out one early morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, later on, these guys got out there early. At 9 in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he'd pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard. And at noon, and then again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. And now at 5 o'clock, like past daylight savings time, it's dark. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he's in town again, and he sees some more people standing around. And he says to them, well, why haven't you worked today? And they replied, because no one hired us. And so the landowner told them, well, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. So that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and to pay them, beginning with the last workers first. And when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. And when those hired first came to get their pay, well, they assumed they saw that, and so they assumed that they were going to receive even more, but they too were paid a full day's wage. And when they received their pay, they protested to the owner, 
That's not fair. They, these people only worked one hour, and yet you paid them as much as you paid us, and we work all day in that scorching heat. He answered one of them. He said, Friend, I, I haven't been unfair. Maybe you agree to work all day for the usual wage. Take your money and go. I, I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Church, should you be jealous because he's kind to others? And Paul takes this story of this Jesus, this risen Jesus that he once persecuted and now he believes is Lord, and he moves it to the personal and theological. And he writes a letter essentially to you and I and to the church going folks of, of Ephesus. Next week we're going to get into the practical. Yes, and we're, next week we're going to talk about how you should now live, what's right and what's wrong, and what are the things that we should do as followers of Jesus. But long before Paul tells us what to do or how to live, he first starts with helping us understand our identity. That's why the first half of this book is all about who you are. You live out your identity. You live out of your identity. Your behavior changes based on understanding of who you are and what has been done for you. Your behavior will not change. Let me get this right. I want to make sure you hear it. Your behavior does not change your identity. Your identity changes your behavior. And that's why we spent all of week one understanding what Paul was teaching about, about being adopted by, by God. What it meant to be adopted. It meant somebody, that somebody paid something to get you. And that it was expensive. In our case, it cost God his own son. We talked about why Paul uses the term adoption. Because adoption means that you're taken out of a bad circumstance and an uncertain future. You're rescued from that and given a better current circumstance and a better future. And so once he teaches us that, he says this to all of those of us who think that we're good religious people, that we've kept the law, we've been, we've good, been good, and he takes that workers in the field story, and he says this, Ephesians chapter 2, hopefully you read it this week, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. This is when Jesus says, yes, I'm going to kill anybody, but, but there's something deeper. There's a, there's a sin issue in your heart. You hate your brother. Paul goes on. All of us also lived among them at one time, and we gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed its desires and thoughts. And just like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul said, look, I know you tried, but here was the point of the law. It wasn't there, it wasn't there to make you righteous. It was there to show you that you couldn't be good enough, that you couldn't keep it. It wasn't just about outward behavior. It was about an inward heart condition. That was our lot. You see, we were adopted out of that. That our future once did not look good. To steal the title of a famous work, all of us at one level or another were sinners in the hand of a righteous God. All goes on. Very next verse. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, and then verse 8. But, this is a really big but. I know that sounds kind of funny, but this is a really, this is like the biggest but in history. But, 
because of his great love for us. Remember what Brian said about why, why he's over in Africa? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And here, here comes the verse that started the Reformation, or at least one of them. It is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast. It is anacophela iosis thigh. If that's the mystery, if, if the mystery is that God is bringing all things under Jesus Christ, then grace is the weapon in the story, and mercy and love of God are the motive behind the mystery, all of it coming together through faith. This is a radical, disturbing story. It still is. When I tell my friends, when I tell relatives about that story of workers in the field, well, wait a minute, I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven, but he's, that guy could be too. It's like, you know what we like to grace the stuff? We like to grace the stuff right after us. That's where it's comfortable. I like to keep grace right there. Prior to Paul, prior to Paul getting how you should live or what you should do, he reminds us that your acts are never to beat up. Your identity is not in what you do or how you act. Your identity is you were chosen by God, adopted as sons and daughters, and forgiven. This story is as countercultural today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because for millennia, for millennia, man has been on a ladder. We do it with our careers, right? Get the ladder out of it, work hard enough. My son texted me the other day, he's working on Wall Street, right? So he's got to be in at 6 a.m. every day. Um, and so he texted me Friday night, he said, new course record. I said, what is that? He said, I got to off my desk at 6 a.m. It's quarter to 11. I'm leaving now. New course record. You know what? If I, if I get in early enough and I stay long enough, then my boss will notice me. And, and if I work hard enough and I make enough money for the firm, then I'm going to climb the career ladder. And I'm making you nervous, aren't I? <laughs> my superior athletic prowess will come through. <laughs> this is what I'm going to take ahead. Uh, but if I, if I work hard enough, I'll get that corner VP office. Because that's what's on the top of my ladder. You see, we do this all the time. Right? And we do it with our kids. I was saying this morning, one of the things we should probably put in the little basket with our kid is a little soft, furry ladder. Because we hand it to them. Here you go, son. Make sure you get some good grades. Do well in sports. Get into the right school. And then you'll make mom and dad proud. This is the path that all of humanity has been on. And the only question really over the centuries has been, what's on top of the ladder? What are you trying to earn and make your way to? Because whatever is up here becomes for you your God, your idol. And, and there, there can be bad things up here, certainly addictions and stuff like that. But there can be really good things up here. You know, I, I really, I, I want to get married. I, I want a, a husband or a wife. And so, you know, I'm going to do all the steps to get there. And eventually, hopefully, if I do enough, if I, if I look good enough, and I lose the weight, you know, I, I get the right job, maybe then I'll be accepted. Maybe then I'll get to the top. And so it's only natural for humanity then. When they might move away from one of their idols and put God here, we do the same thing. I can get to them. Here's what I have to do. I have to be good enough. I have to give enough money. I gotta go to church enough. And if I keep doing these things, eventually I can get to God. What Paul is teaching us is that even when you get to the top of the ladder, right? Even when we put God as our top priority, you there is nothing that you can do to ever get to Him. 
Paul says there is no more boasting about how good you are because I'm tearing that system down. Jesus tore the system down because unlike every other religion of man, Paul's saying that it is God in the form of Jesus Christ who came down the ladder to you. It's still so countercultural. It's still so sacrilegious to so many. The world is so, so hell-bent on climbing this ladder to God. I went to a website this week that charts all of the great world religions. And I pulled from it just quickly the, the kind of how-to heaven box from, from what they call their big religion comparison chart. And I pulled out just some of the, the top religions in terms of uh, the number of people who adhere to that faith. These aren't my words now. These are right off of the chart. Buddhism, right? Here, here's, here's the point of Buddhism. Avoid suffering and gain enlightenment and relief and release from the cycle of rebirth, or at least attain a better rebirth by gaining merit. You know, I, I'm a cat in this life. Maybe if, if I do better, if I work harder, if I, you know, if I pray enough and I give enough, I could be a dog, you know? <laughs> and and, and that's, that's funny, I don't need to make light of anybody's faith, I really don't. But what's at the heart of that is that I can do something to change my destiny and get to God. Hinduism, right? Here's what Hinduism Humans are in bondage to ignorance and illusion. Well, that's true. But they're able to escape. There's something they can do themselves to get out of it. It's actually called uh, karma marga. It's what they believe is the path to salvation, and it occurs through religious duty. If I work hard enough and I'm good enough, then I can go to heaven. Islam, you just heard Brian talk about it. Humans must submit to the will of God, and then you can gain paradise. It's believed that a puberty and account of each person's deeds are open, and that that will be used at the day of judgment to determine his eternal fate. Is there a relative in my family, not a blood relative, an in-law's in-law, who's dying right now? I had somebody in my family call me the other day, and I was saying, how are they doing? They said, well, they're, they're really struggling. They can't sleep. They cry every night. And I said, well, what are they crying? There's a man. This is like, you know, kind of a man's man. I said, well, they said, she, they can't stop him from crying every day. And I said, what is he crying about? He said, he's so afraid to die, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Because he's lived under a religious system that said, keep climbing the ladder, keep climbing the ladder, keep climbing the ladder. Maybe, maybe you'll be good enough. Judaism, same thing, right? Obey God's commandments, live ethically, and if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. And so Paul, in a world which today is still trying to climb a ladder to God based on works, Paul says, stop. I want you to understand why people you might not like, why people who are different than you, why people of different races and behaviors and customs, why people of sordid histories and backgrounds, if you want to understand how they could possibly, possibly be as favored by God as you, then you need to understand that God sees you and I and them the same way. People broken by sin and loved by God. That's what made him cry. Because when you see that, when you get it at deep levels, who you are, what he's done, how he loves, it changes everything. And so this Mission Sunday, a band, you guys can come up. This Mission Sunday, can I ask you guys to reflect? This week, Ephesians 3, you're going to see more about the Jews and the Gentiles and the reconciliation and this truth. Who are your Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles in your life? Who is it that you have allowed yourself to believe they are not as good as you, they are not as fit as you, they are not as worthy? 
worthy as you, they're not as loved by God as you because they don't look like, feel like, think like you do. Because your identity gives you purpose, and your purpose is to be a ministry of reconciliation. Guys, it might not be people that are out there. It might be people in your own home. It might be your family and your kids, your brother or your sister or your mother or your father. Folks whose behavior has upset you, the way they've acted, what they've done to you, the way they persecuted you, how they let you down. You may have somewhere in your heart moved them to the Gentile category. They're not like me. I'm better than them. I'm not even sure God loves them. But the deal is your identity requires of you something different because you are an agent of the mystery of Anakathaiosis Thai. You are an agent of unity and love and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. How will they believe that that is a true message of God if it is not true of the ones who claim to follow them? I have to repeat that. How will the world Understand that this is the mystery of God and what he has been up to all this time if those who claim to be his followers do not live that way. And lastly, maybe this message and this mystery is for you. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you have spent your entire life working so hard. Maybe mommy and daddy told you, God is watching. And so you had, it's funny, we have in our youth group uh, closet over here, we have some food, and it keeps disappearing, so one of our staff put a sign in there, Jesus is watching, <laughs> and that's funny, but if, if, it's, if it's taken the wrong way, it builds up in our mind this concept of, I better be good, and maybe if you've lived that way, maybe you've spent your time wondering, have I done enough, what's going to happen to me, does he love me, will he forgive me, does he know, does he know about that one night in college? For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. You can come off the ladder. And you can make some room for Jesus to come down in. And to descend into your heart. And to explain the history of your adoption as a son or daughter. And today, church, you can begin to live out your glorious marriage. Let me ask you to stand.